invite you to take your Bibles and go over to Colossians 3, our text for this morning. C.S. Lewis wrote a marvelous little book called Mere Christianity, and in that book, he captures the essence of what we are going to talk about over the next six weeks as it relates to heaven. Here's what he said. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. Do you see Lewis's point? Do do you hear what he's saying? He's identifying that there is something powerful, something uniquely transformative when we consider a biblical view of heaven. In fact, talking about, thinking about, learning about heaven does something to us right now. The Bible talks about heaven, it talks about the afterlife, it talks about the future more than you probably even realize, and it's designed not just to answer questions about the future, it's actually designed to motivate you to live now, to ask questions not just about what happens then, but to ask some questions about right now. A biblical view of heaven should change how we view our sufferings. Biblical view of heaven should change how we handle our tears, what we say and how we think about life at funerals. A biblical view of heaven should inform the songs that we sing. It should inform the way in which we worship, how we share the gospel, and even how we think about global missions. A biblical theology of heaven should change the way we see injustice, how we think about sinful actions around us and in us, even how we think about things like genocide. A biblical view of heaven should change how we pray. It should change what we pray about and should change what we love. In fact, I don't think it would be an understatement to say that what you think of heaven determines how you live every day. So the goal for this series is to have you answer this question. If heaven is like that, then how do I live now? I'm going to lay before you some things over the next number of weeks about heaven, and my hope is that you will see things in the Bible and go, wow, if heaven's like this, then how do I live today? You've probably heard the statement before, they're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Well, that can be true. But I fear that we have overcorrected with statements like that, and I would argue that far more of us are so earthly-minded We're not heavenly good. And so over the next number of weeks, we're going to dig into this subject of heaven to try and see if Lewis was right, that if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you get neither. Now, why this series? 
For the next six weeks, we're going to look at a number of subjects, some very important and wide-ranging themes related to heaven, things like glory, things like resurrected bodies, things like the new heavens and the new earth, things like perfection, things like godliness. And I hope that when we end this series that we'll not only know a little bit more about heaven, but you'll also have a greater passion to follow Jesus. In fact, I hope that that starts today. So why talk about heaven? Let me give you five reasons. Number one, most people in our culture believe in heaven, but they know little about it. If you were to do a quick survey of people at your workplace or people in your extended family, in your neighborhood, most of them are going to say they believe in heaven. In fact, a a LifeWay research poll conducted two years ago found that two-thirds of Americans believe that heaven is a real place. But sadly, 45% of them believe that there's more than one way to get to heaven. So people believe in heaven in general, and therefore it behooves us to know what the Bible says about it. Secondly, there is cultural interest in heaven. A few months ago, it dawned on me, all of the movies and the books that have been written about heaven recently, there's there's an incredible number of them. For instance, um, Heaven is for Real, a movie that it was released in 2013, a movie I think that's still playing in the theaters, Miracles from Heaven. This, this fascination with sort of near-death experiences. As well, if you do a survey of the New York Times bestseller you'll list, you'll find things like Imagine Heaven, Proof of Heaven, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, 90 Minutes in Heaven. These are just some books, just to name a few, and there's much, much more. And then it also struck me as odd that while there's all this talk about heaven, there's also this other genre of dystopia films. And it it sort of started me thinking, what's going on within our culture that we're fascinated with movies that show everything that's fallen apart, and we're fascinated with ideas that everything's perfect? It's almost like we live in a world and we don't know which way to go. Third, many Christians do not see the connection, the important connection between heaven and earth. So one of the reasons I want to talk about this is to have you think about how does heaven relate to earth? That's the subtitle of the series, Finally Home, what heaven means for earth. So often, Christians live sort of in this bifurcated world where they think heaven is there and earth is here, and heaven and earth have nothing in common with one another. There's no connection between the two. And then we come to the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't know that we know what that means. Fourth, there is widespread misunderstanding even within most people who would call themselves evangelicals as to what heaven is going to be like. If I just did a survey amongst people in our own church, there'd be a wide range of opinions as to what heaven is going to be like. For example, here's a few questions. Where will we live? Will we live in heaven or will we live on earth? Will we eat in heaven? Will we drink in heaven? Will you, will you be married? Will we know one another? What happens to those who've already died? And what about purgatory? And why is the resurrection important? And my goodness, what are we going to do in heaven? I remember as a kid thinking, if heaven's like church, (laughs) I mean... As a kid, I was like, you know, I mean, I liked church usually, but there are a lot of times when I was like, I'm hungry, 
and when is this guy going to stop talking, you know? So, you know, even, even my kids have leaned over to my wife and said, is dad almost done yet, you know? So, and maybe, so when I heard heaven as a kid, I thought, wow, you know, that's long, you know? <laughs> so, I, I hope to help us with that, and, and what is heaven really going to be like? And then fifth, and this is a significant driver in this. Friends, we live in an increasingly post-Christian culture. It's not a surprise, but it's a good thing to be reminded where our real citizenship lies. You see, Throughout the course of church history, believers have needed to be reminded, yes, you're citizens of the Commonwealth of England, but you're citizens of another realm. Yes, you are citizens of the United States of America, but you are citizens of another kingdom. It's good to be reminded that our king doesn't reside on Pennsylvania Avenue. Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews makes this very important statement about the orientation of those who lived famously by faith and who walked by faith. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them from afar and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. There's some of you who need this series because you're in the middle of a very difficult scenario where you're facing the reality of a countercultural pressure in your life, and this series will be helpful to remind you where you really belong. In fact, part of being a follower of Jesus means that you live in the world, and there's just something fundamentally wrong with the world, and there's this longing in your heart for something more. When Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, He was encouraging them to stand firm in their obedience, to persevere and to pursue righteousness in the midst of a sinful and deceptive world. Here's what he writes. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Verse 20, here's the turn. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. See how linked perseverances to this citizenship mindset. So what's going to happen over the next number of weeks? You're going to learn a lot of new things, I think, about heaven, and I hope to answer some of your questions. I won't be able to answer all of them because not all of our questions are answered in the Bible. But my ultimate aim 
It's not just that you'll know more about heaven. My, my ultimate aim is that your life right now will be shaped more by heaven. My hope is that you'll leave even this morning and as you see the, the, the beauty of this warm, unusual April day, that you'll see that this is just a infinitesimally small sampling of what the glory of the new heaven and the new earth are gonna be like. That as you partake food at lunch, that you'll be thinking about a future meal that we'll all enjoy together in glory. That, that, that what happens on earth will set your heart towards heaven so that then your mindset on the heaven will know how, help you know how to live on earth. I want you to answer this question. If heaven is like that, how do I live now? So, Colossians 3 is essentially about seeking and setting our minds upon things that are above. Our text is one of the most important passages as it relates to developing a heavenly mindset. And what Paul is doing when he's writing this particular section is addressing a church at Colossae who was struggling with significant spiritual issues. There was some form of false teaching that was creating havoc in the church. This, this false teaching had some form of mysticism and legalism and sensuality all wrapped up in it. There's the worship of angels, this sort of higher knowledge. It seems to combine some form of Judaism and some kind of local folk belief. And this church was struggling with this errant teaching, and Paul wrote to them the book of Colossians in order to highlight the centrality of Jesus Christ. So you want to know what this book is about? It's about Jesus Christ being the core. You don't make him the core, he is the core. And for those of you who were in 2008, that better sound familiar, because <laughs> that's what I said over and over and over and over and over. Those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, the first series that I did when I came here, it was in the book of Colossians, which helped to set our sights on igniting a passion to follow Jesus, reminding us that he's the central reality of the universe. Now, verses one to four contain some phrases that are thematically parallel to one another. What I've done is I've color-coded the phrases so that you can see the parallelism more clearly. This text has statements in it that relate to one's position, and those are coded in purple. So there's statements about position. You've been raised with Christ, you died, your life is hidden with him, Christ is your life, position. Then there are things that relate to promise, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and promise, when Christ appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then finally, practice. What is Paul calling them and us to do? Those are marked in red. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So let's look at each of these. Position, and then promise, and then practice, and see how this helps us to frame a heavenly mindset as we begin to explore what does it mean that we are trying to figure out what heaven means for earth, first position. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. 
And then verse two, set your mind on things that are above. And then verse three, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What Paul does here is what he normally does, which is before telling people what to do, he tells them who they are. He starts with position. And what he's identifying here is that what you seek after and what you set your mind upon and what you hope in are entirely dependent upon who you really are. In other words, what you seek for really reflects what you really love, or more foundationally, who you really are. That's why verse one begins with the word if. It's conditional. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So let me say from the outset that what follows in this text is entirely conditional, meaning The Bible is very clear that a heavenly mindset, and for that matter, heaven itself, is not guaranteed to every human being. So if you're here today, and this is the first time you've come to church ever or a long time, you may think or want to think, as we would all want to think, that everyone who dies just goes to heaven. It's the great destination of every single human being. The problem is, is the Bible tells us that's just categorically not true. In fact, the Bible tells us, Jesus himself said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this particular statement means that Christ is the exclusive way by which people are brought to the Father. So, An understanding of Christianity essentially is this, is that because we're sinners, we can't get to heaven on our own, and our good works won't get us there. The only way that we get to heaven, the only way that we're brought back into fellowship with our Creator is through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, and no one comes to the Father but but, but through me, or but by me. So that first question, how do people get to heaven? Well, the answer biblically is only through the person and work of Jesus. This particular statement is what has historically and will continue to make Christianity a challenging worldview in a pluralistic culture. It's not just that Christians believe that Jesus is a way, we believe that he is the only way. And that's why the Bible often describes the gospel as an offense. My hope, if you're not a Christian, is that you'll come to see why that is something that not only makes sense, but something that in your heart becomes self-authenticating, and you say, oddly enough, I somehow want to believe this now. So what happens by coming to Jesus, by putting one's trust in him, a person, something happens to that person, and the Bible calls it a union with Christ. It means that we are united to Jesus, that what happens to him happens to us. God looks at Christ, and what happened to Jesus, God then counts for our, for our sins. He then counts Jesus' death as our death, and Jesus' resurrection as our resurrection, which is why Paul says... If you have been raised with Christ, he's speaking about it in a spiritual sense, that when Christ was raised, when you put your faith in him, God treats you as if you have been raised. That's why he also says in verse 3, you have died, 
And then he says this, your life is hidden with Christ in God. I love this. It means that in Christ you have now been placed so that you are in him. That means that if you were to stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? Your answer on that day is because I believed in him. I'm in him. And the robe of righteousness that God has put around you, the account that now declares you not guilty, has been settled because of the work of Christ. So that it is in him and in him your life is hidden with Christ. Therefore, Paul says in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears. So what Paul is indicating here is this union with Christ means that a new spiritual reality has taken over. To have died with Christ, to having been raised with him, means that our life is now so dependent upon him, so linked to him, that everything we have can be really encapsulated in just two simple words, in Christ. We are in him. Why does this matter? It matters because without being united to Christ, there is no forgiveness. There is no redemption. There is no everlasting life. Union with Christ is a heaven or hell issue. Secondly, this matters because Jesus is the center of the gospel, and as a result, Jesus is also the center of everlasting life in heaven. So if you're going to be excited about heaven, you have to be excited about Jesus. Because heaven wouldn't be heaven without Jesus being there. And as we'll see, the central figure in heaven is the glory and the beauty of Christ. And we get to bask in the beauty of that. And so some of you, the reason why heaven is not all that important to you now, if you're honest, is because Jesus isn't all that important to you now. I mean, you know him, but it may be that your affections for him have begun to wane. And so we talk about heaven, you're like, yeah, I'm just looking forward to my lunch and my nap. And it may be that part of what will happen in your life is that your heart will begin to be more affectionate towards Jesus. And then third, union with Jesus becomes the basis for a change of mindset even now. You see, positional realities in the Bible have practical effects. When, when, when God changes who we are or when something happens to us that's so transformative, as Jesus described it to Nicodemus, as being born again, that then changes what we see, it changes what we love, it changes what we seek, it changes what we do. That's why if you're not a Christian, you, you may read the Bible and you're like, why is that significant to you? And when you're a Christian, you read the Bible, you see things that a person who isn't a Christian doesn't see. Why? Because there's a different positional reality. And this happens in other areas of life in smaller ways. This summer, I will have been married 23 years to my dear wife, Sarah, and I'll tell you, I'm a different guy because of being married to her, and she from being married to me. I, I, there are things that I love now that I would never have thought, dreamed that I would have loved when I was 21 and we got married. I mean, for instance, and I've used this illustration before, I mean, in my room, my dorm room, I had, you know, pictures of... Um, I had this picture of Martin Luther King, a speech that he gave, my room at home. I had this picture of Michael Jordan, you know, he's like, you know, doing that number and got that stick on the wall. And you know, I'd walk through Dick's Sporting Goods or maybe another Sporting Goods that you know, and I'd see things like, oh, that is really cool. And used to, you know, think that these things were really awesome. And, and, and then I got married and, and something miraculous happened. Like two weekends ago, we're at Ikea and I'm walking around like, this lamp is really cool, you know? <laughs> 
whoa, look at this bedspread, honey. This is awesome. Or, oh, look at this pillow. Or, look at this little sheep, and then be cute. You know, I mean, like, what has happened to me, right? And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have, you, you have moved from this to that. Or some of you wives, like you know the names of particular basketball players and you know the stats on, you know, people are gonna get drafted in the NFL and you can hardly believe it. Like you actually have a shirt now for a, a football team and you didn't even know that team existed 30 years ago. <laughs> what happens? The union changes what you see, it changes what you love. And to be in Christ means that you have a new identity, a new freedom, a new power, a new affection, new longings, a new future, a new hope. So this, this relationship with Christ is foundational to everything else. If you're here just because you're curious about what Christians believe about heaven, I am so glad you're here. And my hope is that you'll see that heaven is not heaven without Christ. And that you'll come and Put your trust and faith in him. Secondly, there's a promise here. There's actually two of them. A heavenly mindset involves an orientation towards two things that are not seen and both of which should be believed. One promise relates to something that has already happened, we just can't see it. Another promise relates to what is yet to come and we hope and believe in it in the future. So first, the promise is found in chapter three and verse one. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, here it is, where Christ is, that's how he explains above. What does he mean by above? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now that's a real reality even now. Even though we didn't see him ascend to heaven and the disciples did, even though we don't see the vision that Stephen saw when the heavens opened and he saw Christ standing at the right hand of the throne of God, that is a reality and it is something that must be believed. It's a promise that Christ is at the right hand of the throne of God, which means that he is ruling and he is reigning even now. This, this idea of Christ at the right hand of the throne of God is used all over the New Testament. It's used three times in Paul's letters. It's used five times in the book of Acts. It's used five times in the book of Hebrews. And it's designed to highlight the rule, the reign, the supremacy of Christ, that he has been victorious over sin and death. It means that although we live in a broken world, although this world has not yet been taken fully captive by the authority and the rule of Christ, we know that we have a Savior who died, that Savior was raised, and that Savior ascended into heaven, and he is waiting for the day when he will come back and reclaim the earth and say, this world belongs to me and take it all back. And until that time, we are to seek those things that relate to that heavenly realm. Christ is. Seek the things that are above. What's the above? The above is where Christ is, meaning seek the things that are related to his rule, to his reign, and to his supremacy. Second promise is future-oriented. It says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So this promise relates to the future, and it relates to the end of the ages, when Christ returns, and when the whole world will see who he really is. Revelation 1-7 says that he will come with the clouds, and every eye will see him. He will come in glory. And believers will then share in his glory, and we will be like him. The, the promise here is simply that there is coming a day that what 
is true of a believer positionally will be completely true in all aspects, and we will live out perfectly our identity that we have in Christ. So what's true about Christ now will be true about us then. So that's why the Bible calls him the first fruits. So we will be like him. In the same way that his identity is known, then our identity will be known. So we will be glorified. That's why the Bible says that a believer groans in the present world, because while the union with Christ has happened, while there's new affections and new desires and new longings, we still live in a broken world, and we still have brokenness embedded within us, and we long for something more. We were made for more, and that more is glory when Christ returns. In fact, if you're not a believer, here's what this means for you. It means that somewhere you know that the things on earth are not as satisfying as what you think they're going to be. So you go from a new relationship, a new job, a new substance, a new experience, and you keep waking up the next morning going, no, that's not it, no, that's not it, no, that's not it, no. And maybe it takes a day, an hour, a week, or three years, you suddenly realize, you know what, I am missing something, and you are. You were made for more. The Bible tells us that this glory, the glory that Jesus shares It's the glory that he gives to those who put their trust in him and we then become what we were truly made for. So heavenly mindset then is rooted in this promise of God about what's true about Christ now and also what will be true about those who know Christ, what will be true about them in the future. It's good to be reminded that Christ is at the right hand of the throne of God. It's good to be reminded if you're walking through cancer that one day this struggle, this battle is gonna be over. It's good to be reminded if you keep dealing with the same sin over and over and over that one day Jesus is gonna come and just wipe out all those subtle little wrong desires in your life. So there's a promise, there's position, third, practice. The final parallel here relates to Paul calling believers to do something. Not only to know something, but they're to do something. There's two commands in this text. The first command is in verse 1. It says, seek the things that are above. And the second command is in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Both commands are present active imperatives, which means they are commands that are to be obeyed continually. So seeking and setting needs to be something that is continually practiced. Both commands are saying nearly the same thing, but in a slightly different nuance. Let me explain this. Seeking is more about one's affections, more about one's desires. Setting one's mind is more about what we think about. So it deals both with the affective areas of our lives and the intellectual parts of our lives. In other words, you can think of it this way. What do you love and what do you think about? And those two are so intertwined, but they're distinct. The first command to seek, it means to search diligently for something. Seek the things that are above, to try and reach for them, to grab a hold of them. Jesus used this in Matthew 6, 33, when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Luke uses it in 1910 to describe Jesus' mission to seek 
and save the lost. The idea then in Colossians 3 is an orientation of the heart. In other words, what you love, your affections. And this is what happens when you become united with Christ. He gives you a new heart. He gives you new desires, new longings. And Paul says, seek the things that are above. Allow those affections to be fanned into flame. Stop squelching those affections. Facilitate those affections. Set your hearts and lives on Christ and the things that are above and his rule and his reign and set your heart on those things. Followers of Jesus have set their hearts on another world. So seek the things that are above. Secondly, set your minds it's another word which means to direct one's attention or thought to something. So whereas to seek meant to point the heart, setting your mind refers to what we are to do with our brains. We're to think about things related to heaven. And so my question for you would be this, do, do you think about heaven? Do you think about heavenly things? In your small groups this week, we, we published, our team did a great job publishing a study guide, and in your small groups this week, I can't wait for you to discuss question number two, which by the way, if you're not in a small group, you, you're welcome to get into one. We've got room for you. Get in right now and join the study. Question number two is this. Prior to this week, how would you have described the value about thinking of heaven or things above in your daily life? I, I really am curious to hear how, how you're going to answer that in the context of your small groups. What does thinking about heavenly things look like? Has it looked like in your life? I hope that one of the byproducts of this sermon series is that you'll find yourself thinking about heavenly things, thinking about things above more than you've thought about it before, and you will set your mind on those things. I hope that some of you will start taking some action steps towards, towards filling your mind with heavenly-oriented things. I mean, I, I've seen this in my own life. It's it's, it's really easy to get stuck into a day-to-day -day operation. We're just think, dealing with things of the earth, things of the earth, things of the earth, things of the earth. I would acknowledge to you that I am a bit of a news junkie. I love to know what's going on in the world. I read a number of different newspapers. I like to know what's going on. And in a presidential cycle, oh man, it's, it's a drug, you know? And, and honestly, at times, it's just, it's too much. And my wife recently said to me while I was watching, you know, the news again, and she's like, you know they're just saying the same thing over and over, right? And they just say it louder and louder. And I'm like, I know, but every time it's just a little bit new. And so what I've found in my life is this, that that can be too much. And I got to kind of dial it back. There's nothing wrong with it. But maybe, so I decided to cut down by about a third, like detoxing myself, right? And you know what I also have found? I found that my soul is not helped by laying in bed. It's just me, by laying in bed and watching the news just before I go to sleep. But I have found that if I read a really good book and have my heart think about things that are beyond this world, if that book can smack me in the face just before I go to bed and fall asleep, my heart is significantly helped. It's helpful just to be reminded and to think about things that are beyond this realm and this world. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong or you're some sort of loser Christian if you watch the news at 11 o'clock at night in your bed. We're not going to start a support group for you or something like that. <laughs> but what I am saying is that maybe you need to think about in your life in some way, how are the things of the earth becoming too much and you're not instead thinking about things that relate to things above? 
What I want to do is sort of open your eyes to see the beauty of what's just right beyond you. Think of it this way. Um, One of the disadvantages of living in a major metropolitan area is there are so many lights that are on at night. I remember a number of years ago, we took our kids camping when they were really little. We went up to northern Michigan, and about three in the morning, our boys were really little. One of them woke up and said, Dad, I have to go to the bathroom. It's like, all right, come on. So we went outside the camper, we walked to the bathroom, and the way back, I looked up, and it was like, it was a crystal clear night. It was like the sky had exploded. I had no idea that were that many stars that were up there. And my son, who was just walking along, I said, hey, look up. And he looked up and said, wow. He had no idea that behind all of the covering of normal city lights, there's an expanse of a universe, and sometimes it's good just to turn the lights down a little bit so you can see what's really real. Do you know what I'm saying? What you might not realize is that an orientation towards heaven is all over the New Testament. Don't write these down. Let me just read to you a number of verses. Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Do not lay up, this is Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Matthew 16, regarding the church, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.1, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And for this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Hebrews 3.1, therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, 1 Peter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. In other words, nobody can touch that. And finally, when Paul writes at the end of his life, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever, amen. So what I want you to see is how important heaven is. If heaven is like that, how do I live now? Let me give you four implications of this. First, friends, if heaven is such a popular topic, why not ask people what they believe about it? Let's use this season, let's use this subject matter for opportunity for gospel conversations with people. Use it as a door. For that matter, just blame me. You could say, hey, my pastor's doing this series on heaven. 
And I'm just curious. Like, I know what he thinks about it. I kind of think, I know what I think about it, but what do you think about heaven? And listen, and if they're polite, they'll ask you what you think about it, and boom, there you go, open door for the gospel. So let's pray, God, use this subject to create opportunities to engage people in important conversations about the gospel. Secondly, determine over the next six weeks to think about heaven so that you do not just think about things on earth. So I'm going to assume that you're thinking about things on earth all the time. And those things aren't inherently bad. Some of them could be, but many of them are really good things. The fact of the matter is, though, that all of these earthly-oriented things can begin to take over our lives, and I want to encourage you to use this season as an opportunity to fill your mind with some new thoughts or maybe old reminders about the importance of heaven. Maybe just to read a book or to start singing some songs or to pray with other people and be reminded I live in Indianapolis, but my king is in heaven. I'm a citizen of the United States of America, but my king is in the heavens. To be reminded that because of my union with Christ, now I have a different way of looking at the world. That you could even come to the scriptures. I hope that this even changes how you read the Bible, that you'll come even tomorrow morning and open up the Bible and say, God, would you help me to see, help me to see heavenly things, to see things that are otherworldly, so you can read the scriptures and something emerges and it doesn't just become a book or a page or words, it becomes a portal through which you see and behold the glory of Christ. And we'll talk about that glory next week. Third, I want some of you to consider repenting from an orientation that is only earthly focused. Some of you, as I'm talking about this, as it relates to the world and its system, its values, its affections, you may be a follower of Jesus, but if you're honest today, just if you were to take a, a little MRI of your soul, you're not that excited about Christ. Maybe it's just been a couple days, maybe it's been a week, maybe it's been a month, maybe it's been a number of years, and I would just encourage you in light of what we're seeing in this passage this morning, and maybe that God has you here today because he's wooing you back. And I need just to tell you, there's forgiveness and mercy ready and available to you. Jesus wants you to have your heart not divided and set towards him. And every Lord's Day, we get to remind one another about the beauties of what it means to follow Christ. And then finally, realize that seeking things above changes our behavior now. We didn't go through verses 5 to 11. I had them read. You can go on to verses 12 to 17, and you'll see that if you have a things above mindset, it transforms how you live right now. To be heavenly minded means a different behavior People who are oriented towards heavenly things, toward things above, they put off sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. They, they put away anger and malice and slander and obscene talk. They put those things away. Instead, they put on kindness and humility and meekness and patience. They, they, they bear with one another. They forgive one another. They put on love. And whatever they do in word or deed, they do it all in the name of Jesus. And in fact, you know what? This church is supposed to be a little touch of heaven. Conversations that happen out in the atrium, the ways in which we interact with one another, the ways in which we love each other, pray for one another, care for one another, we are to be an embassy of another kingdom, and that's supposed to happen right here today in just a few moments. So when you leave this room, think of heaven as it relates to how you relate to one another. 
Put on the beautiful reality of what it means to have Christ in you and for him to be your glory. The idea is that we are to be a people that while we live on earth, our minds and our hearts are set on things above. I think Lewis is right. You aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither. Set your minds on things above. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Let's pray. Father, help us to see what we cannot see unless you help us. Help us to have hearts that are reoriented towards you this morning. Help us to set our minds on things that facilitate a heavenly-mindedness, and, and help us to treat one another, even in the next few moments, to, to live out what it means to be a little taste of heaven, even now. Oh, Lord, that people coming into this very facility would sense there is something different about these people. So, God, with all the burdens, all the issues, all the sins that we carry, Remind us where Christ is and what that means. And in light of heaven being like that, would you help us to know how to live now? Amen.